Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Radiant REIT for sponsoring this episode. Radiant REIT is the first ever investment trust to bring mortgage REITs to the solar energy market. And you'll learn more about Radiant REIT during this episode. Thank you. I would say 99% of our portfolio right now with solar is owned by extra space storage. We own the panels, we own the project, we brought our own financing to the table. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm really excited to interview my guest. He's Nathan Vasher. He's the manager of Solar Extra Space Storage. If you don't know Extra Space Storage, it's a publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange. It's a fully integrated, self-administered, self-management real estate investment trust and a member of the S&P 500. Extra Space has properties in 40 states, Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico, They own or operate over 1,800 stores, comprising approximately 1.3 million units and 135 million square feet of rentable space. Extra Space has become one of the largest corporate users of solar energy, according to rankings released by SIA, which is a Solar Energy Industry Association. The trade group ranked Extra Space in 10th place in terms of number of solar installations with Target, Walmart, and Walgreens occupying the top three slots. I'm excited to interview Nathan. He has a very role as the manager of Solar at Extra Space. He was also a facility analyst before his current role. He has seven years of professional client-facing experience working with public sector, nonprofit, and international clients through all phases of organization development. Nathan, it's great to have you on the podcast and get your unique perspective. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, of course. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to having a discussion. Yeah, definitely. And I know when we had the pre-interview, it was really interesting to hear your role as the solar manager at Extra Space Storage. Can you talk in detail more about your varied experience with solar? Yeah. So I come from a background of vendor management and and contract management and stuff like that. And so it was a nice fit when I transitioned into into the solar world. Essentially at Extra Space, I, I run everything and anything related to solar. So all the way from identifying projects through construction of those projects to commissioning of those projects, and then all the way on the back end to operation and maintenance when those things need to happen. So it's definitely a start to finish operation that I'm running. Yeah, and that was amazing to me that when we spoke, the start to finish, and I'm excited because you're our first corporate that we've actually interviewed and one of the largest corporate users. I know I briefly talked about extra space and the deployment of solar. Can you talk about more of the company's you know, strategy for solar? Yeah, yeah for sure. We've been running our solar program for a little under a decade. We started back in 2009, 2010, really kind of when some of the markets, specifically on the East Coast, started offering SRECs and some of those other types of incentives. So that was really our kind of first strategy. Our first focus was really kind of getting some of those incentives and securing them for ourselves. And then we started looking to a broader perspective of really, okay, what else can offer us good incentives and good financial returns? And so that brought us to to states like California and, and Colorado and some of these other states in Illinois and whatnot. And now our strategy really is to look and say, okay, what can bring us the biggest financial returns and also help us to grow our sustainability portfolio? 
um, throughout the country. So we really are at this point evaluating all of our portfolios, both the wholly owned portfolio that we have that we own, where we own the, the entire property, and then also working with some of our JV partners or joint venture partners to really evaluate what's appropriate, what's an appropriate kind of ownership structure and approach to take for putting solar on some of those properties. So really, we're just looking far and wide at our entire portfolio to really understand how can we get the best benefit from having solar on as many properties as, as we possibly can. Sure. And do you do like the financial feasibility analysis to see which projects in the portfolio are the best to target? Yeah, we definitely do. So we have a process. So what we do is we work very closely with our vendors. We have a core group of about four or five vendors that we work very closely with and we have a long relationship with. And what we'll do is we'll look at our portfolio and essentially say, we believe that this chunk of properties at this time is going to give us the best return on our investment. And we'll put those out to bid, essentially, and we'll get bids back from our vendors. And then what we'll do is we'll run a financial analysis on all those bids and essentially say, okay, which one of these properties is actually going to give us the best returns? And we have specific thresholds that we look at. And if they meet those thresholds, then we move forward with those projects and with those vendors. And so it's definitely a key component of what we do. I think as a shareholder, as returning value to shareholders is something that we have as a key, as a public REIT and a publicly traded company. That's something that we're always looking at is how do we get the most value for the capital that we spend? And, and solar up to this point has been a, a huge return on our investment. It still is. And so it excites us to continue to look at that and keep going. Definitely. That's really helpful to understand. Nathan, you were talking about vendors. When you say vendors, are you talking about really solar installers? Is that, or that could be defined in developers or what? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great question. We have a little of both. So we have a, a couple of vendors where we have one vendor that is a start to finish, right? So they bring to the table their relationship, obviously with panel manufacturers and racking manufacturers, et cetera, but they are an installer. So they take it from design and engineering all the way to install and, and then operation maintenance. And then we also have some relationship with some developers who are just that. We look to them and say, you go out and find us the contractors. You go out and manage that whole process for us. So we have a little bit of a mix, which suits our needs. So it's nice. Yeah, that's great that you have that mix and that flexibility and to find basically the best opportunities to maximize your return with solar on your portfolio. You mentioned initially that you focused on SREX, if not everyone's familiar with it, but it's the solar renewable energy credit that's to incentivize the development of solar. And were a lot of your projects basically in the Northeast initially, and I know you mentioned you moved to California, like New Jersey or Massachusetts, like which states have you focused on or have your highest penetration? So because those SREX markets were almost exclusively in the Northeast to start. All of our focus in the beginning was on New Jersey, Massachusetts, and those areas really. And so for a long time, those were our highest kind of penetration states. At the moment, California is the state that just has the most solar for us in terms of our coverage. And whenever we get a new property in California, we try to put solar on it immediately because the payoff is just such a quick payoff for us. And it's such a quick return on our investment. And is that because it's in California specifically, you have high cost of electricity and then high solar radiance or those the primary? Exactly. Yeah. So you put those it's like a double whammy. You just put both of those together and you just get an, an incredible payoff. It's a no brainer for us in California. Definitely. And is there more of a challenge with, I know you mentioned, which is a great point, 
with extra space, there's your fully owned storage facilities. Then you have like JV partners. Right. Can you talk about like the education process to get the JV partners comfortable with potentially going solar? So our wholly owned portfolio is really simple. It's basically, if we see an opportunity to put solar on a property, we just move forward with it because we don't have to ask anybody's permission. We own the properties, we own the roofs, we just go forward. With our JV partners, a lot of them are just starting to come around. So we have a wide mix of partners, all the way from your Prudentials and your TIA Crafts and some very large kind of institutional portfolio type investments, investment companies, all the way down to your mom and pop neighborhood, one storage facility. So, and everywhere in between. It's a different approach for everybody, right? So when you have your large JVs, they can bring their own financing to the table. They can say, this is how we're going to pay for it. And we're going to bring some financing to the table and go from there. And let's work out the ownership structure. Once in those types of situations, if we can just get them on the phone and kind of talk through some of the economics of the ITC, the accelerated depreciation, the solar savings that you can get just from your energy bill, it's generally an easy sell. Like it's not a difficult thing because they have the capital and they can invest that capital and they go forward. When we're talking to some of our smaller partners, it's a little more difficult because they often don't have a large cash stockpile to just invest in solar right off the bat. So we've talked about exploring different ways in which we can help them offer bridge loans or those types of mechanisms that they can repay over time or repay out of revenues from the property or something like that. But we're just in the nascent stages of really trying to figure out what is best for each of our partners and how we work together with them to do solar. They're almost all or most of the projects, you're really owning the project and obviously getting either self-financing or outside financing that you're not really doing third-party financing, meaning like another company would own the system. I would say 99% of our portfolio right now with solar is owned by extra space storage. We own the panels, we own the project, we brought our own financing to the table. We have like six, six to 10 projects, specifically in Southern California, due to some legal complications that we just didn't want to get involved with, where we leased out the roof to a third party. We're willing to do that where it makes sense, but our strong preference is to own the system for obvious financial reasons. So that's kind of where we're at. And we've looked from time to time at some other kind of tax equity plays where we get involved in investing some of our capital and maybe some community solar projects that are close to our facilities or some of those things, but the financial returns just aren't the same. We haven't pursued them. That makes a lot of sense. Can you talk in detail too more about the cradle to grave sort of process that you run the RFP process with your vendors? I know you talked about it very high level. I can't imagine with all the assets that you have, how do you figure out which ones to is worth the time for an RFP process? Obviously, it sounds like California, that's an easy... Yeah. It is kind of a little bit of a turkey shoot sometimes, if you will, like (laughs) trying to figure out how, what should we put out to RFP? I'll use the last example. We just ran an RFP over the summer, well, late summer, early fall. In where what we did is we looked across our portfolio and said, okay, where do we already have solar? Obviously, that's out. Where are, at the time, we were just, everything's so new with our JV partners, so we kind of excluded all of them. And then we said, okay, what markets do we believe are going to be the best, right? So we put out to market states like Florida. We put out to market states like Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Ohio, Indiana, some of these states. And then we just threw out some states where we were like, we have a ton of properties and it would be great, but it's probably not going to happen like Texas, right? So it's like, if somebody can come back and give us a competitive bid on Texas, 
you can have all of Texas and then you, can, <laughs> you know, nobody could obviously for obvious reasons, power is so cheap there, but that's kind of the thinking we go through. And then obviously we had some Colorado's and we had some Arizona's and some California, some stuff in the West and then a little bit in Hawaii. But so we really just kind of look and say, okay, what do we think is going to make sense? And where have we had success in the past? So we look a little bit about let our past success and past kind of financial returns kind of guide what we put out to RFP a little bit. And so we put it out to RFP. We give them four to six weeks. I can't remember what we gave them this time. I think it was six weeks of your standard RFP timeline. And basically just said, give us a bid in six weeks. And they send us back a bid. We compiled those. And like I said, we had our financial analysis team run through those, run through a model that, that, that they've developed. They gave us the returns. We looked at, and once we had all of the returns back, obviously we had multiple bids for multiple properties, right? So what we did is we looked at, okay, here's the financial returns comparably for the three vendors for this one site. Well, you want to look at the highest return at first, right? So you take that. But then you also look at the geographic spread of the companies, right? You don't want to have a company doing one project in Florida and 35 projects in California, right? Whereas, and then the vice versa with another company doing one project in California and 35 in Florida. So what we did is we looked at that geography and said, okay, you may have a little bit less of a financial return, but you're doing 20 projects right here. So you can get a little bit of an economy of scale, labor and everything right there. So we would do that and then we would communicate that to our vendors. And then once we have that all kind of situated and kind of really those preliminary stages of where we want our kind of capital to be deployed, we take it through a legal review, an internal legal review, just make sure that some of our properties are old Kmarts or old Walmarts. And so they have some community, they're called CCRs. I can't remember what the term is, the exact thing is, but basically regulations, community code regulations to where you can't have so many things that have to be so close to the roof. They can't be so high or or there's some sort of lease restrictions we have. So we make sure that everything is clear from a legal perspective. And then we look at the roof as well and say, is the roof sound basically? Does it have a five to seven years worth of life left? Because that's kind of the return that how quickly we get a return on our capital is to have that kind of meet that threshold. And if it does, then if it meets all those three criteria in terms of financial, legal, and a roof assessment, then we move forward with the project. And then we take it just like you would a normal project. So we turn it over at that point over to the vendor who promises us a turnkey solution. So they take it to design and engineering, they take it to permits, they take it to interconnection, they build it, they commission it, they get permission to operate and then they hand it over to us. And then we own the system from then on and we run it and we have O&M agreements with our vendors and they'll come out and service the systems as electrical storm or whatever inverter breaks or whatever panels need to be cleaned, just like that. So that's kind of the whole cradle of the RFP all the way to the grave process. Definitely. That is really helpful, Nathan. And with these vendors, how do you vet the vendors that are able to participate in the RFP? Yeah. So we go, we have a process in place. So what we do is if vendors reach out to us and say that they would like to participate, what we do is we obviously check their financials to make sure that they're financially viable enough to, to sustain a large amount of projects if we give them to them. We look at kind of comparables of what they've done in the past. And then what we actually do before we allow them to participate in the RFP is we give them a handful of sites that have already been assigned to a vendor, right? So what that does for us is it allows us to say, okay, here's where we're comfortable at with our history and our vendors and what we're comfortable paying. Can you get within a comfortable range of that? 
it's not a race to the bottom because that doesn't produce necessarily the best results, but it's, it gives us a comparable apples to apples. Our current vendors are paying this. We're paying them this. You say you can do it for this and in this much time. Okay, you're in the range. And if you're in that range, when the RFP comes out, we'll include you in the RFP. So that's kind of the process we go through to vet. Um, that is pretty interesting, Nathan, because then you're basically qualifying the best parties before, yeah. which is great. It's interesting too. Another point that you were talking about was the roof assessment. Can you talk about like conditions of the roof and putting solar? Obviously, solar is a long-lived asset that you have for 20 to 30 years. You don't want to do any roof work. Hopefully, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm, can you talk about how do you look at roofing assessments and maybe even doing roofing work? So the way we look at it is because solar is a long life asset, right? We're looking probably 20, 25 years at minimum. And the life of a roof, depending on what type of roof it is, can be 20 to 30 years. Oftentimes our roofs are older because our buildings are older. And some of them are getting towards that end of their life cycle place, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes so, sense. Yeah, so we don't want to be so cautious that we're just excluding roofs, like I said, that have some usable life on them. So if there's, our kind of sweet spot has been five to seven years. And we have some trusted vendors who can give us an assessment of this roof will cost, take five to seven years. Or if you do these repairs for a couple thousand dollars, you can get 10 years of life left out of this roof. So that's kind of where we're comfortable at in that process. And if it needs some repairs, we'll do some minor repairs. Like we're doing a, we have a site in North Carolina right now that needed $3,000 worth of, of repairs to the standing seam roof so that we could put the solar on before. So we wouldn't have to do it after. That's our first thing we look at and first thing to try to get at. And then once we put it on, obviously the way we plan is in terms of finances is we plan that at some point in the life of the solar, the roof is going to have to be fully replaced just because of how our business is run and how self-storage a lot of the self-storage units, as you'll probably notice, are older. And so yes. they have 25-year-old roofs. And so it's just kind of how it works. So we plan in our financial calculations that we have a formula that we use and we plan that in. And so when that roof has to be replaced or a large chunk of it needs to be fixed, what we do is we contact the installer, our vendor, and say, hey, give us a quote to take off and replace these panels. So they get a quote, we work with them and connect them with our roofing company. Basically they go in, take off the panels, take off the racking. They'll store it in one of our units for two to three weeks. They'll put the roof on, take the roof off, put the new one on. And then basically they'll put the panels back on and just reinstall the panels, reconnect all the inverters, reconnect the meters and put everything back on. So that's kind of the way we look at it. Oh, that's pretty unique because it being in storage and obviously older buildings and roofs, that's really interesting because that's a different strategy than I've heard in the past. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. We were actually talking about this, but what are some of the challenges of putting solar on storage facilities? Obviously, we're just talking about the roofs and how you handle that situation, the buildings being older. And can you talk to some of those challenges? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the big challenges that we face is I think in an ideal world, you want just a very large flat surface to put a solar panels on. You just bigger, the better, and the flatter, the better. Well, with storage units, especially with some of our older properties, what you have is you'll have between seven to 12 buildings of storage unit size. So a 10 by 10 yes. building that's 200 feet long, which is great. That means you can get like one or two panels for 200 feet. Yeah. So one of the challenges is, <laughs> and then when you have 12 roofs, 
not all the roofs are always replaced at the same time. So you could have six of the roofs could be five years old and the other six of the roofs could be 35 years old. So six of the roofs are good to put solar on and the other six need to be completely replaced before you put solar on. And so it's trying to find the mix is one of the challenges, trying to find the right mix on some of these older properties of how we can really get the biggest bang for our buck without having to really bend over backwards to configure the system, if that makes sense. That's one of the challenges. I think another challenge is oftentimes we're constantly redeveloping our properties just to make them new and attractive to customers. One of the challenges that we have is getting the right size of the system for the property. Because what will happen, a good example is actually here in Sandy, Utah, we built a property, we put solar on the top, and it's a non-climate controlled building. So it's just a real building. And then we decided to buy the property next door and put a fully climate controlled two-story building in, which you can imagine is just an energy suck. So you went from having a property where you're not paying any energy costs because you have the right size solar to now you're back paying two, $3,000 a month. Because a little bit of how extra spaces storage is structured, the right people don't communicate with the right people all the time. And so this climate controlled building has been there for three years and we've been paying all this cost when we didn't need to. So it's getting that right size and that right communication of when we redevelop a property to get the biggest bang for our buck, if that makes sense. So I think those are really the two biggest things. And that right sizing applies across the board as well, Mm -hmm. because we're trying to match our energy demand with what the city or municipality or state will let us install for a property of our type. And so it's just trying to get that mix right so that we can lower our costs as much as possible. Definitely. That's really interesting. That's really helpful. That's interesting perspective that I would have never thought until you talked about, especially the redevelopment piece of that. And obviously like the biggest savings, this is a good example, actually, you're paying for the electricity. So really the biggest benefit to going solar is the cost savings of using solar and not obviously having to pay for that. So yeah, it can be huge. Yeah, it's definitely, as you said, and that's a scenario in Utah where you're yeah. paying two to 3000 per month. Yeah, it can definitely be huge. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Radiant Reit for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Radiant Reit is the first ever investment trust to bring mortgage REITs to the solar energy market. For the solar developers and EPC developers out there, financing with the Radiant Reit Solar Mortgage REIT will transform how you think about the business of project development. With Radiant REIT's financing, you can increase project cash flow and you could retain ownership of your projects. The company's cradle-to-grave financing package includes the entire capital stack. Radiant REIT arranges tax equity, 100% construction financing, and up to 99% term financing at competitive rates with no upfront fees, including legal and diligence. Co-founders Jim Spano and Jeff Just are solar and finance veterans who brought together a team of experts to create and offer this innovative financing model, enabling developers to capture the true value of their development. They're committed to addressing the financing gaps that exist in today's market, especially for small and mid-sized developers. Radiant Root will remove the stress of financing or refinancing and allow you to maintain your focus on your projects. Let them be your outsourced structured finance department. Visit RadiantReit.com to learn more and to submit your expression of interest form today.
One of the other questions that I had was, can you talk about when Extra Space started installing solar and how much solar has been installed to date? Yeah, for Obviously, sure. You're one of the major corporate users of solar and it would be great for the audience to get a better understanding. Yeah, of course. It's a little fuzzy <laughs> when exactly when we put our first solar installation on, but it was about 2009, 2010-ish. We started the process and then our records aren't great in terms of whether it was installed in 2010 or 2011, but it was in that 09 to 11, kind of 18-month time frame in there that we installed our first solar, solar system. And then we've been installing just kind of a regular clip all for the past 10 years. Right now, we're right around $20 million a year in terms of installations on our properties. At the moment, we have around 415-ish, somewhere in that neighborhood, properties installed. And again, that's wholly owned, of our wholly owned stuff. Some of our JVs, quite a few of our JVs actually have it, but in terms of wholly owned, we're at about 400. And right now we have in various stages of development and approval, another probably 200 to 250 projects that will help to kind of round out our wholly owned portfolio. So we have a good chunk of the portfolio that we have and feel comfortable with where we're at and and we're just going to keep going and, until we run out of roofs, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely, I mean, the growth rate to potentially have in development another 215 properties from already having 415, that's amazing. Yeah, that's pretty great. Growth and development that you've been intimately involved with. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I keep you pretty busy. Very intimately involved with all of that. <laughs> yes, yeah. keep me busy. And then I know, obviously, you focus on solar, but I read that Extra Space is very involved in other sustainability initiatives. Can you briefly yeah. talk to that as well? Yeah, I can talk to you. I mean, I'm not the expert in this area, but some of the things we're trying to do, I think the main thing that we've tried to do is around LED lighting retrofits. That's something we've been doing for about 10 years as well. And really, we looked at when you go from T12 to LED, kind of that switch. Mm -hmm. And now we're kind of in the second, third generation of LED lights. So I'll give you an example. So right now, what we're going to start a, a new conversion process where basically all of our properties that have LED lights, which is just about all of them, we're actually going to change them to a new LED light that has a, a life cycle of about 300,000 hours, so which is 30 or 40 years. So meaning we'll never have to buy lights for our properties ever again, which is really great. And the cost savings is about from those LEDs to these new LEDs is only about probably two to three percent. It wasn't as the 10 to 12 percent that you saw going from T12 to LED, but it's still two to three percent. So it's definitely a cost savings thing for us as well. But it, the fact that it's basically a 25 to 30 year life cycle of this bulb is a pretty fantastic thing for us. Oh, that's amazing. I haven't even heard of a 25 to 30 year life. We have an inside track. To give all of them. We have an inside connection. <laughs> they're a little more expensive, but they're great. They're great light bulbs. Yeah. I mean, the other piece of that too is you're saving as well. I'm sure this is part of the analysis of a person coming and changing the bulbs. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Someone coming and changing them every so often. Yeah. But then if you have it for 30 years, then you don't have to worry yeah, about that. I have to buy light bulbs again. <laughs> yeah. But that's great that you're taking an integrated approach to like energy yeah. savings and incorporating renewable energy technologies like solar. Nathan, what got you interested in solar? Like how did that happen? And can you talk... Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was the new, so I come from a background, like I said, of procurement and category management and, and this opportunity arose. It's a new thing. I like learning new things. 
So learning about solar and it was just an exciting opportunity to kind of do something different with my career and learn a new kind of product category and really kind of get in the weeds with it and try to understand it. And I think it's great. It's something that has really that double bottom line of being makes financial sense, but then is also extremely sustainable and has a direct environmental impact. So it, it has those two things that just kind of make sense to me and, and kind of speak to me. So it's a really kind of a fun thing. So what, as far as being like a corporate user of energy, like what trends are you seeing in the solar industry that are getting you excited? I know, obviously we were talking about batteries. Yeah, I think the biggest one for me right now, the biggest one for us is really around, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, from your perspective, but is really around the combination of solar and storage together. Because one of the things that we have a lot of properties in Florida, a lot of properties up and down the East Coast, hurricanes, we have some in the Midwest with tornadoes, we have some in California where California just turns off the power because it's windy and they don't want wildfires. And, and so really the idea of having the ability to obviously have solar, which is renewable and great, but then also be able to power the whole site in the event of a natural disaster or a man-made incident like these, these recent power shutoffs in California that have been happening in the past couple of years. The ability to offer that to our clients and to our customers and say, look, we have batteries, your climate-controlled storage unit where you need it to be a certain temperature all year round, we can promise you that it will always be that because we have solar, which is always there as power. And then we have these batteries that store that solar power and always turn on. It's a really attractive proposition to us. I think that's what has us, us at Extra Space the most excited because there's such a direct application to our customers and to what they are looking for. It's really kind of an exciting opportunity for us. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think from where I sit, combining solar and storage is a huge opportunity. I mean, you're having an intermittent power source that now you could basically use at night for resiliency purposes. If anything happens to the grid, you're able to use it during storms. And you were talking about obviously the wildfires. And I think it's going to be a trend basically coupling solar plus storage, especially as lithium ion prices keep going down, we're seeing large drops in pricing. And then what's interesting as well, which I'm sure you're paying attention to as well, is like different states are coming out with incentives exactly for, for energy storage, the different uses of the battery, ancillary services, grid reliability. There's so many different parts of the battery that potentially that they could incentivize. So definitely for your business to be able to guarantee that it's going to be climate controlled, even within some sort of disaster, natural disaster. That's huge. And I think it's an exciting... Yeah, we're excited about it. We're excited to see where it goes in the next year or two. So for sure. Yeah, it'll definitely take some time. And it seems like a lot of states and people are trying to couple the technology. So that's yeah, pretty- yeah, they definitely are. So that's exciting for us. And do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I think one that I would like your perspective on is kind of, is, is this emerging kind of issue around the ITC and the step down of the ITC and really, how do you see kind of as the ITC steps down, or maybe hopefully it will get renewed, we'll see. But as it steps down, as most people are planning for, 
How do you see kind of state incentives or even down to the local incentive level? How do you kind of see that from your perspective and where you're sitting? How do you see that kind of making up the difference, if that makes sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like if I'm sure most of the audience is familiar that the ITC is currently at 30% and it's going to step down to what, 26% next year, then a few years at 10%. So that's a lot of value that obviously projects are going to lose I'm hoping there's a couple of things like obviously what we've seen is states have now really taken the initiative of having stronger state level incentives to make sure that solar energy is popular. Also, it seems like too, the technology is getting better as well. The prices keep declining. The efficiencies of the panel are getting better. We're getting more efficient at building it. There's newer technologies that are coming out. So I think it's going to be like a multi-prong approach to basically make up the difference. I think, obviously, hopefully, we all know that there's some legislation to keep it at 30%. Hopefully, in the ideal situation, that happens. But I think it's going to be challenging, especially when the ITC gets to 10% in a few years to be able to offset that. But it's been interesting to see like how many states have 100 percent renewable energy goals, which then they then passed incentives to make it happen. Also companies as well and individuals. So I think that's a major challenge and a great point. How is that difference going to be made up for, especially with projects that have tighter margins? It makes it a lot more challenging and difficult. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think from our perspective as a corporate entity, we're really kind of paying attention to that. All those things that you mentioned, because as we get farther and farther into our portfolio, as you can imagine, we're getting into states that have less and less viable financial returns for us. And so as ATC steps down, it becomes that extra 4% from 30 to 26% or 26 to 22 really kind of takes a cut in kind of the viability in terms of the financial perspective for us. And so it's, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, definitely. It'll still be to determine and we'll see what happens. Nathan, this has been an amazing interview. I appreciate your time. If people yeah. want to learn more about extra space storage or get in contact with you, what's the best way? Yeah, if you want to learn more about Extra Space Storage, you can go to our main website, extraspacestorage.com, and you can poke around there and see a little bit more about us. Also, you can read our Wikipedia page. We keep that updated pretty well. So you can go there and learn about a little bit more about the history of the company and where we're at. If people want to get a hold of me, they can feel free to email me um, just directly. My email is just N, first letter of my first name, nvasher, extraspace.com. And I'd be happy to talk. Happy to go from there. Great. Thank you, Nathan. This has been an amazing interview. I really appreciate your time today. You've really provided great perspective from a corporate's perspective, which we haven't had on the podcast. And it's amazing also to hear your passion and your knowledge base for it. So thank you. Yeah, sure. No, this has been great. Thanks for having me. Oh, anytime. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U-Energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. 